Well, today we come to Daniel chapter 11, a challenging text indeed. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. A uh, tough sermon to hear, a tougher one to preach. Um, what we have in this text is really something quite extraordinary, actually. Difficult to preach, no doubt, but, uh, but extraordinary to see and to hear. Daniel, remember, we're at the end of Daniel's uh, prophecy here, and Daniel has gotten this extended vision of the end for him. It's something that extends well, obviously, well beyond his years. This takes us up to the Messiah and perhaps beyond, perhaps beyond. Um, and in these last three chapters, We've seen before in Daniel, he's gotten these historical, it's, it's a very unusual book because some of the prophecies are of these very historical uh, uh, prophecies in nature, su such as the, the statue with the four successive kingdoms, the beasts, the four successive kingdoms. It's really, we start to see a point. These four successive kingdoms are pretty important to the story, uh, very particular. And then, and then even in the imagery of the four kingdoms, and how they relate to the successive kingdoms, you know, with Alexander being the leopard with wings, you know, who, who, who moves uh, quickly and within 10 years has essentially conquered the world. And, and then even some details about uh, that kingdom that are very specific uh, and testify to the uh, omniscience and sovereignty of God. And we get that in this text as well, except here, that story, that post-Daniel story, is given in excruciating detail. Uh, it is given in minute detail. Detail that has led many commentators to say it could not have been written by Daniel. It was written much later after these events. This is interpretation of history, not prophecy of it. And for many exegetical reasons, we can say with confidence that that is not the case and that this is, in fact, written by Daniel. But, I mean, that's the kind of, that's the kind of precision that we get here uh, in this text. Now, what we are not... <laughs> now, if I told you, now we're going to go verse by verse through this, so buckle up. Um, there'd be many moans and groans. Um, there they are. Uh, <laughs> we, will not, we will not do that today. Today, I'm going to fly high above the text, and, uh, and we're going to look down from 30,000 feet and survey but it would be worth going back and looking at. And if you did so with your history book, you would be amazed at the level of detail. Not just, oh, there's going to be a king here and a king there, and then this one's going to win, and, you know, with some speculation like that, but very, very specific details that get worked out in history. We can at least survey it in general. We see that it begins here with the time where Daniel is and then extends to the end. Remember now that since Jerusalem has fallen, uh, the Babylonian, the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom. The Babylonians then conquered them and then conquered the southern kingdom. So now the Babylonians are the world power. But we've already seen in, in, our, in this book that the Babylonians have been overcome by the Persians and the Medes. And the Persians will rule until the Greeks. And they... He tells you right in the beginning here, I, I tell you the truth, there's going to be four more. So here he gives you the exact length of the, uh, the reign of the Persians. And the last one is going to be richer than all of them. And you know who that is. You know this guy. His name is Xerxes. 
um, and maybe you've heard his name, Ahasuerus, but he is the, he is the Persian emperor ruling at the time of Esther, and we, we've preached through the book of Esther. And you'll remember, if you remember your history at all, that it, it's Xerxes who decides he wants to go after the Greeks. He, he approaches Asia Minor, and the Greeks see what's coming. They see the greatest empire in the world expanding toward them, coming up around Turkey through Asia Minor, and then up into Macedonia. He messes with the Macedonians, defeats them. And the Greeks assume he's got, you know, that he's got his eyes set on them. And so uh, the, the war, the great Persian Wars break out. If you, if you know anything about your Greek history, it's the, the famous Battle of Marathon, from which we get the name for a marathon when, when runners run because of the runner who ran, to, you know, to Sparta to ask for help. At that, Athens was being attacked and they asked Sparta for help and Sparta said no and left uh, uh, Athens on their own. Athens survives that. And in a surprising victory, pushes back the Persians. The Persians return. And at this time, the Spartans do join the Athenians. And that's the famous Battle of Thermopylae. If you know, you've maybe heard that. Or if you don't want to admit, you've watched the movie 300. That's what that's about. And, and so you have the Battle of, of Thermopylae. And then, uh, and then finally, and, and, the, and the Persians win that battle. And they subdue the Greeks. But then the Greeks, through the, the savviness of the Athenians, uh, defeat uh, the Persian navy at the Battle of Salamis and send the, the Persians off with their tail between their legs, anticipating that they would one day return, but they do not. In the meantime, while the Persians are licking their wounds and, and Xerxes has been humbled here and thinking about how he's going to, what he's going to do, in the meantime, the Greeks start fighting amongst themselves and the king of the Macedonians dies and he's succeeded by his son, Alexander. And Alexander sweeps down and takes Greece for himself and then sets his eyes on the Persians. And that's what you have uh, mentioned here. A mighty king shall arise, uh, verse 3, and rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven. It's exactly right. Alexander dies. He has no living sons. His, as we've already talked about, his kingdom is broken up into four and to these four generals. And that's the end of that. And then the text now launches into the relations between these generals, particularly the army of the, the, the north, the Seleucids, and the south, the Ptolemies. So Ptolemy got Egypt and Seleucus got um, Syria and that region. And the rest of the story now is really this battle that now is waged between the army of the north, the Seleucids, and the army of the south, the Ptolemies, and this back and forth that's going on between them. And again, some amazing detail is given in this. I mean, and, and we can just consider right at the beginning, just the first one, and this will set the tone and you can go read the others. Again, with really, in this case, history book in hand and, and this prophecy, and just read through the stories. You, you'll, you'll be amazed. But it starts out there in verse five, and the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years, he shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. This is, this, and this literally happens. The, the, the Ptolemaic king wants to make peace with the king of the north. 
And so he sends one of his daughters up to marry the king of the north. And so he sends his gift, Bernice, up to the, to the king of the north to marry and, and hey, let's, let's make peace. The problem is the king of the north is already married to a woman named Laodice. And old Laodice, she doesn't particularly like this idea of a gift of a wife being sent to him, which is, it was a great gesture, but I don't know if you know, but I'm his wife. And so here comes this woman and he said, what are you doing here? He said, well, I'm here to marry the king and we're going to make peace agreement. And she said, oh, well, okay, that's news to me. And so she poisons her and a son and the king, kills them all. And then the king of the south and again, if we, if we read on, so at the end of some years, they join forces that the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north and make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority. No, she won't because she's poisoned. She's, she's dead. And neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up. Yes, to those who brought, and those who brought her with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. But from a branch of her roots, there shall arise in his palace one who shall come with an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and deal with them and prevail. And yes, that's exactly what happens. It's her brother. Her brother, uh, uh, Bernice, Bernice has now been poisoned. And so she's out of the picture. She can't make this peace ar arrangement. Uh, she's dead. But her brother, after the king of the south dies, her brother becomes king, comes up to the north, and then says, here's how we'll make peace. I'll conquer you, and then you'll all be ours. And and on and on it goes, because now he's reigning both, but then the kings of the north will rise up and they'll go down to the south. And we're going to get, as you as you read, and again, go back and look at all the gory details of the backs and the forths with uh, the kings of the north and the kings of the south. All of this brings us to the point of that we've already thought about in this story. If you If we shift over to the end, the king that they're ultimately, this story is leading toward is uh, Antiochus IV, who we've talked about. He was a king of the north who named himself Antiochus Epiphanes, right? So, so uh, well, Theu, uh, Theus Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus, God revealed, God manifested. So this is what he thought of himself. And if you go back and read here, you can hear he despised the gods of his fathers. He, he set himself up as God over the gods of his fathers and over the gods of the, of, of the glorious land, namely Israel. And Antiochus IV will go down to the southern kingdom in this battle of backs and forths. Antiochus IV will go down and he will smack them around. And then he'll come back up and extend his power into the glorious land, into Israel. And there are going to be some within the land of Israel who cower before him and who give in to his ways and some who try to resist. But then the king of the south kind of raise, rears his head again. And so Antiochus IV goes back down to the south and is going to smack them around again. But this time when he goes, another army shows up, actually a navy. Ships from Cyprus, we're told, and that is the Romans. The Romans, actually, now they're on their ascendancy, and they join the south and resist Antiochus. They stand with uh, uh, the Ptolemaic rulers, and they stand there, and they subdue Antiochus and humble him. Back in the glorious land, back in Israel, word starts to spread that Antiochus has been killed. Oh, and they're thrilled, because he's been a beast to them. 
And so they start to, to celebrate this and set up their, their, uh, their Jewish ways again. But in, of course, Antiochus was not killed. The Romans put an ultimatum to him. Either you submit and admit defeat right now or you're going to die. He humbles himself. He's very embarrassed. He admits defeat. He brings his armies back up to the north and then hears that in the glorious land, in the land of Israel and Palestine, they are celebrating his death and he comes and literally brings the fires of hell. And hence the language of the abomination of desolation. Right? He attacks Jerusalem, lays siege to it for uh, several years and obliterates, kills tens of thousands, forbids the Jewish rituals. This is what we talked about a few weeks ago. No more circumcising your children. No more of the feasts. Uh, uh, no more of the food laws. Gets all the, the images out of, all of the uh, articles out of the temple. Sets up an altar to Zeus in the temple. Has pigs sacrificed on the altar. And right, he just, anything he can do to desecrate uh, uh, the people of Israel. And you either submit and stop practicing your Judaism or you die at the sword. That Those are your only two options. And many did die at the sword, and many did compromise and joined. And again, if you read it again hearing this, you will hear this very language in the, uh, in the text. And so it was a dark time. Now, okay, that's the story that's being given, okay? So I want to, from our 30,000 feet foot view, I want to make, to continue the theme of the marathon, I only want to make seven points today, <laughs> Just to, you know, just to give, yeah. hey, wait, no, I looked. It's six. Good news. Good, <laughs> good news. It's only six points. All right. So this is what you're in for today. The Lord knew what he was doing when he brought you here. What do we think of this? Well, I have three points about the nature of a text like this and what we see in here without going into the nitty gritty details. And then three about, so what? What's it mean for you and me? Okay. So first. What do we learn from a text like this? And again, I really do encourage you to read it because the first, when I read it to you, all you hear is north, south, south, north, north, south. You can't, you can't keep it straight. It's, it's like a big ball of spaghetti. Yeah, I can't tell where anything goes here. So you, you go check it out again. But here's what we can say. In our catechism, in our catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the question goes like this. What are the decrees of God? And the answer to that question is the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. I'll say it again. The decrees of God, and you can see this in the back of your, uh, I don't know if it's in your hymnal or not. Is the catechism in our hymnal? Yeah. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose. Eternal purpose. According to the counsel of his will. So he has determined it. Whereby, so by this will, he hath foreordained. He has ordained. To ordain, we just had the ordination of Justin Sherrod, which, by the way, I brought greetings from you all uh, to him, and he was blessed by that. To be ordained is to be Authorized. Right? Justin, is, he's having a baptism. He's baptizing one of our students today. Isn't that awesome? Uh, Hannah. And he could do it now. He's authorized by the church to say, yes, you have the authority to represent Jesus Christ and baptize people and bring them into the kingdom formally. 
Well, God has foreordained, he has authorized beforehand, whatsoever comes to pass. Whatsoever comes to pass. That's what our catechism says. Whatever comes to pass has been foreordained by God. God is not moving through history with us and experiencing things as they happen. You and I are. We are right at the cutting edge of history. You are experiencing things with me right on the face of it. We're experiencing everything new. Every instant, it's new. And we're having to learn, and we're having to adjust and make micro-adjustments every day to what we think is going to happen in the way. It doesn't turn out how we thought. We have to adjust, sometimes quickly, sometimes long-term, all kinds of things. God is not doing that. God is in peaceful, sovereign control over every molecule. As R.C. Sproul said, there is not one maverick molecule in the entire cosmos. But the movement of every molecule, the movement of every proton and electron and neutron, the movement of every one has been foreordained by God. And that is being displayed for us in this text today. Because even the little strange movements of history, like the giving of a daughter for marriage, but she's already married and the poisoning of the thing and it doesn't work out for her, but it'll be one of her brand. I mean, all these little histories, though he doesn't give names, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. Nonetheless, the plot and the story is laid out exactly as it will be. Because our God is sovereign over every molecule. Now that either brings you comfort or it brings you terror. It depends what your relationship with Him is. If you are a son or daughter of His, then that will bring you great comfort. Because He has promised that all things, every molecule, works together for your good. So if you're a child of His then this idea that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass brings you great comfort. And if you are not, well then, of course, it's great terror. But brothers and sisters, as the people of God, a text like this ought to encourage us because we see that all the, in some case, horrific things that were about to take place, and some of them are horrific, and that causes its own troubles, its own consternation. Why, Lord? If you're sovereign over these things, then why is this the story that you're foreordaining? That's a, that's a fair question. That's a question that a Christian son or daughter can legitimately ask his or her father. Jesus Christ upon the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think in his praying that prayer, he takes up all of our times that we've prayed that prayer. But he knows it's his father that he's speaking to. And in the end, though he does not receive an answer verbally there, nonetheless, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm going nowhere. I trust you. And even in this darkest hour, I trust you. I know you're sovereign and I know you're good. So these are fair questions. I don't, I don't pretend that there's no questions that this provokes when we say God is sovereign over every maverick molecule. What about the Osama bin Laden molecules? What about the Adolf Hitler molecules? What, what about the Hamas uh, molecules, right? What about all these things? What, what, are you, what are you saying, Bill? If you're saying God is sovereign over all these things, I'm saying that Hamas, nor Osama bin Laden, nor Adolf Hitler, nor Nero, nor any other creature in heaven or earth or under the earth can do one thing that is out of accord with what God allows them to do. 
He is sovereign over every detail and he will bring it to its proper resolution. Number two, God's plan includes trouble. Right, so this, this, again, brings us back that as the people of God, it brings us great comfort to know our God is sovereign and that he's in control. But please do not misunderstand that to say that it won't hurt. God's sovereign, immutable, good plan contains a lot of awful stuff and awful people who do horrific things, who will be judged, but who nonetheless are allowed under the sovereign authority of God to do horrible things. Rooted back, if you will, to the Garden of Eden when God created man in his image and said, hey, trust me, trust me. And Satan said, no, trust me. And when man said, okay, we trust Satan, God said, okay, okay. Like the father of the prodigal son, like here's your inheritance, take it and go. But it, I know where it's going to lead you. And the, and the father of the prodigal son let him go to the city and end up in misery. When we, as the image bearers of God, said yes to Satan, we did the exact same thing, and we unleashed hell. We opened Pandora's box. There's a reason these myths work in history, because it's exactly what happened. And God allowed us to open Pandora's box. And God allowed us to open up a world that was going to bring pancreatic cancer, that was going to bring holocausts that was going to bring tsunamis and volcanoes, that was going to bring unemployment and divorce and civil unrest and all these things, these horrible things. We did this by his divine permission. He foreordained it, and we executed it. And we've got to understand that. That in his sovereign purposes, he has chosen to allow this story. And when you read this story, there's a lot of bloodshed. There's a lot of armies attacking here and killing there and going there and killing here and killing there. and that. It's a story that contains much trouble. And we have to come to grips with that. This is the story you live in. And your God is sovereign over it. But you got to know that going in. I think one of the reasons why we don't get names, not that God does that in his prophecies, but he could have. He could have said, and then it's going to be Bernice, and Bernice is going to go up there to King you know, because in some sense, the names for us don't matter. It's the st This is your story. This story is still going on. Kings of the North, give them any name you want. And kings of the South, give them any name you want, are still attacking each other like morons. Still causing bloodshed. I just met with a parent the other day in our parent-teacher meetings who, who's an uh, uh, immigrant from Ukraine. Not recently. But her parents still live there. Her mom is over here with her now. Her dad just said, I got to go home. I can't. I want to be in my own home. I'm going back. And he just went back to Ukraine. Like her family is living under this same exact thing. This is the story of Daniel 11. It's just fine. Now it's Ukraine and Russia. Oh, now it's Hamas and Israel. Who knows who will be next? But these are the stories that we have to live in. So that's why I think there's no names Yes, it is located, it is very specific to very historical moments, and yet it is general enough to be the story that we all live in. So know that. The plan of your sovereign God, read Revelation as well, right? Beasts come up and it is given to them to make war against the saints and to overcome them. You have to know that. Thirdly, the futility of the kingdoms of this world. That's my, that's my third observation here. 
Again, no names because it doesn't matter. It's always the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. And you know what? They keep beating their heads into the wall as if they're actually gaining something. We've joked in here before about the, the, the poem, Shelley's poem, Ozymandias, with the, with the statue of the great king, you know, fictitious king Ozymandias, who, whose statue is laying buried in the sand, all broken in pieces. And when the guy reads the inscription, it says, I am the great Ozymandias. Everybody who sees me fear and tremble, I am the mighty Ozymandias. You know? Meanwhile, his statue's laying in rubble and no one even knows who he is. It's, it's like the soldiers, in, if you've ever seen the movie Night of the Museum, you know, where they got the Roman soldiers, you know, and, the, and every night they come alive. And they go and they fight their battles, you know, and they, and they think they're winning and they're fighting. And then at night they all have to go back to their, you know, in the morning when the sun comes out, they all have to go back to their places. And the next night they get back and they go to war again as if they're going to win something. And the sun comes out and they go back to their place. And every night they fight the same battle. And somebody has to tell them, you know, nothing's happening here, right? You know, you're not actually winning anything. And they say, how dare you say that? Of course we're winning something. You realize that all the battles of all... The, I know we have to fight for justice, don't get me wrong. They're, 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 we do have a Christian theory of, of just war, and we should fight just wars. And in that sense, you are standing for righteousness, no doubt about it. But all the arrogant ambitions of the kingdoms of this world are only the king of the north and the king of the south just exchanging blows. And now you have it, and now we have it. And now we have it, and now you have it. And we pass back and forth the honors of who's winning, and then generation dies, new generation comes, and they think they're winning something, and they die, and no one remembers their names anymore. And I think just a text like this is meant to create in you a, a taste, a desire, a longing like a thirst when you're really thirsty or when you've had too many sweet things and you just need something savory or when you've worked really hard and you just need a cold drink, that kind of thing. I think this text is meant to make you do that for something eternal and something lasting. These stupid kings, you know, when the, you know, when, when the, the Psalms, again, because we sing Psalms, we're one of the only churches that sings about, oh, you stupid people. You don't get to sing about that many churches, but we do because we sing Psalms. And, and in the Psalms, it just says that, oh, you stupid people. Like, what are you thinking? Nations that rage against the Lord and his almighty. It's like the little statues in Night in the Museum raging against the, you know, it's ridiculous. But it makes us long for something solid. A kingdom that never fades and that never dies. And when, when Daniel gets to see this, because in his vision of the statue, when the little stone comes and knocks it down, remember, that stone grows into a mighty mountain, a kingdom that will last forever and ever. And when in his vision in Daniel uh, 7, uh, uh, the, the four wild beasts, but one like a son of man rises to heaven and he's seated in the throne of glory. And it says what was given to him was eternal and everlasting dominion. That's what we want. That's what a text like this drives you toward, I think. It ought to. Be careful, brothers and sisters, that you don't get caught up in the news cycle. Because guess what? A text like this tells you that will always be the news cycle. You, you, if you're like me, you tend to think that, and this isn't just about news cycles, it's about problems in my life. Sometimes it's about health issues. Sometimes it's about business problems. Sometimes it's about cultural problems. You just think, if I just get over this hill, if I just overcome this problem, 
the road smooths out. I hate to break this to you. And some of you are older than I am and you know it. And yet we still fall into the trap of thinking that if we just get over this hurdle, things will smooth out. I hate to break it to you. Between here and the grave, it is nothing but hurdles. Between here and the grave, it is nothing but problems. It is nothing but new challenges to overcome. And when you get over that one, there's a thousand more waiting for you. That is the reality. That's the story this is telling. When, when does it smooth out in this story? Kingdom of the South, kingdom of the North, kingdom of the North, kingdom of the South. And so it is for you and I. This is the story we are in. So don't anchor yourself to the kingdom of the North or the kingdom of the South or America or your bank account or your job or even your biological family. Anchor yourself to something that lasts, namely the kingdom of God. Okay, so what do we do with this? Let me conclude with three short points from starting in verse 32. Because as all this is going down, Antiochus IV is doing his worst up in Israel we get the introduction of what we know will be the Maccabees and Judas Maccabeus, who will lead a revolt and push back. He will not accept the blasphemy of Antiochus. So in verse 32, you get a hint at them, and you can go read the uh, you know, first and second Maccabees if you want. It's good reading. It's nothing wrong with reading the Apocrypha. You're not evil if you read the Apocrypha, and you will get the history of this, Okay. Those who do wickedly, I'm in verse 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong. And it says, carry out great exploits. It says in other, uh, I think in the ESV, it says, and will resist. You can see even in the King James, great exploits is in italics there. Because what they're saying is that's not really there. We're just telling you what we think it means. Okay. So we'll resist. But the people who know their God shall be strong and resist. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for their days they shall fall by the sword and flame by captivity and plundering. So here's, here's my three takeaways from this as thinking about the Maccabeans and then through them to you and me. If this is the story we're living in, though the figures may be different. But this is basically the narrative which I think it is, right? Hurdle after hurdle after hurdle, trouble after trouble after trouble. This is a world of sorrows and of woe, okay? We might want to convince ourselves that it's a good world, and it is a good world only through the grace of God, but it is a land of woe. And I know that because we go to funerals, okay? So as happy as you want, you're still you're going to get a bad phone call, and you're going to have to go to a funeral, and it's going to really sting. It's going to remind you that this is an age of curse. That is, the, that is this story. So what do you do about it? Number one, know your God. But the people who know their God, that's how, that's how the Lord distinguishes for Daniel this like the whole background music of this text is heavy and scary and haunting. And then all of a sudden a little burst of beautiful music. It's gray and dark and all of a sudden a little beam of sunshine, a little patch of blue sky. And the patch of blue sky in this text is those who know their God. That's who we want to be. In a world of chaos, in a world of trouble, in a world of people running around with their hair on fire, in a world of people who are anchoring, trying to anchor themselves to vapor, but they can't make it stick. We need to be the solid people. Not because we're so much better than them, but because of who we know. We know our God. This is why we are here today. 
so that we might reorient ourselves again toward our God, that we might know Him, that we might root ourselves deeply in who He is, lest we be tossed to and fro by the waves of history and the problems of our age and by bad diagnoses. No, no. Know your God. Secondly, those who know their God shall be strong and resist or carry out great exploits. Okay, They will do great things. Okay. So do that. Know God and resist. Right here, I take resist. Now, Judas Maccabeus picked up a sword and said, no way. And started swinging it, wielding it. Okay, maybe the time called for that. But we see in Jesus what resistance looks like for you and me. And it doesn't look like picking up a sword and wielding and killing Romans. It looked like dying. It looked like dying with faith. It looked like trusting God and saying no to all the temptations of Satan to take an easy road. And Jesus at the end of the day said, if this is the cup that my God tells me to drink, I will drink it. You know, Martin Luther, I give this quote to my students. Martin Luther said, if God commanded me to eat the horse manure off the street, not only would I eat it, but I would know it's good for me. And Jesus gets to Gethsemane. And he says, Father, if there's any way for me not to eat this horse manure, I'd really love that. And the father says, no. And the, and the son says, not only then will I eat it, but I will know it's good for me. I will not give in to the temptation of Satan who offers me all the delicacies of Babylon. And that's what he's offering them. Bow down. I give you all the kingdoms. You don't have to die. Pontius Pilate's just like, hey, I'll let you go. But Jesus holds firm. Jesus resists and does great exploits. He resists with a sword, but his sword is the sword, the double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, the word of God that he wields even against Satan. He resists the devil and he flees. James tells us to do the same thing. Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Resist. Oh, it's so tempting. Resist and be transformed in the renewing of your minds. Know your God. That's where it starts. Know your theology. Study Him. Focus on Him and you will be strong. And as such, you then will be able to resist. If you don't know Him, you will not resist. You'll cave. And then finally, know your God, resist, and teach. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. So, yes, I know my God, therefore I resist, and then I set my sights on others, right? I bring the gospel. I bring the good news to others. I want to see others not going down this road of destruction. I hate it when I see others being caught up in the news cycle and they can't escape like they're inside a, 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 a washing machine just getting tumbled around and tumbled around and tumbled around. No, that's instability. Teach Model the stability in your life, the God you know and the confidence he gives you, and then tell others about it. Teach others because, again, Antiochus is making a mess of things. He's, he's, he's causing people to compromise. I think here of, of the great uh, woman in church history named Blandina. We learn about her through Eusebius of Caesarea, who writes the early church history for the later early church. And tells the stories that maybe they don't know. And one of those stories is my beloved Polycarp, who I love so much. But in that story, after Polycarp, he tells the story of this woman, Blandina. And Blandina was being persecuted for her faith by the Roman emperors. 
and being tortured so that she would deny Christ. And she was not going to deny. But while she's being tortured, she sees a young boy, a teenager. And she sees, he's also being tortured for being Christian. And she sees him getting ready to cave. And she says, hey, don't you do it. You stand firm. And she continues to be with him and comfort him. And they go through horrific tortures, being like grilled on a metal chair. They would burn the chair. They would sit you on a chair and light a fire under it and scold you and burn you and pour boiling things down your throat. She's going through all these while this young boy is going through it. And she should have died by all accounts, by Eusebius' account. She should have died. But she spends her energy instructing, telling him, be strong. Don't you give in. And then when the boy dies, she dies. She's actually gored by a bull and dies. And this heroic story of faith of a woman who knew her God, who was strong, who resisted in the way Christ resisted, I will not give in, and then who taught. She taught that young boy. She gave her energy to say, don't you conform. And by God's grace, saw him through to the end. And may we be those kind of people. May we be Blandinas. May we be like her who spend our time gathering up people and telling them about the only thing that can give anybody any hope and solidity so they're not caught up in this mess. We'll discuss it more in Sunday school, but that's our 30,000-foot view. God is in control of every detail, but his details include trouble, so be prepared for it. But the kingdoms of this age are futile. Therefore, know your God, uh, trust in him, resist, and teach others in that way. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that our age is like a tumbling washing machine, like stormy waves on the sea that bounce us all over the place and, and threaten to capsize us. And Lord, we ask that you would give us stability, give us that solid rock upon which to stand in the midst of the stormy waves, that, Father, we might not try to anchor ourselves to fleeting things, but that we might put our hope in Christ, and having put our hope in Him, might then be able to resist the the power to con the, the the temptation to conform, and in resisting the the temptation to conform, that we might be those who look out for our neighbor, then as Blandina did, and who teach others to be strong and to put their faith in Christ. Lord, make us those kind of people that we might glorify you all the days of our lives. We give you thanks in Jesus' name, Amen.